Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues in God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Mitch Glazer who is president of Chosen People Ministries. He comes to us by Zoom from New York. And our topic today is Israel in Scripture and why Israel matters. So um, we have a backdrop here to this conversation in that there are many people who think that Israel, in one way or another, at least until she believes, has defaulted her role in the plan of God. And so... We're going to be discussing why Israel is important, uh, what it means about the character of God and the promises of God, as well as what it means for Israel, what it means for evangelism, et cetera. So, Mitch, welcome to the table. We're glad to have you back. You're a veteran of foreign wars. I am. Glad to have you back. Well, actually, it's great to, to be back, Daryl, and, and to address this topic, which is so near to my heart and something that I've spent so much time reflecting on and thinking about and, uh, and spending time in Israel, which is always a good thing when you're talking about Israel. So I'm looking forward to, to the dialogue. Very good. Well, let me, let me just dive right in, uh, and let's talk about the covenant base for the role that Israel has to start off with. So when we think about the role of Israel in Scripture, um, some people think that uh, what has happened in Christ somehow, um, how can I say this, um, adjusts what we had in, uh, in the Older Testament or in the, what I like to call the Hebrew Scripture. I like to remind people that when the events of the New Testament were happening, there wasn't a New Testament yet, and there was only one Scripture, and that Scripture was the Hebrew Scripture. So, um, so let's start there. Where, where does the central place of Israel come from? Well, Israel is a miracle, Daryl, because God spoke to Abram and Sarah and told them that they were going to have uh, a, a baby. And uh, it would be a miraculous baby because Sarah was, and Abraham, but certainly Sarah was well beyond the age of bearing a child. And so uh, her response in the book of Genesis was to laugh. And that's why he was named Yitzchak, which means to laugh. But it's no laughing matter because a miracle of God happened. And, you know, we have a God who is a God of miracles when it comes to human birth. He created the way that uh, babies are made. And then when he wanted to, he circumvented it. (laughs) And uh, that's what we call a miracle. And so there was a miracle that took place. Abraham and Sarah should not have been able to have a child But you see, when God wants something special to happen, he does something special to make it happen. And so there's a misnomer, maybe to some degree uh, from theologians or writers, but it's it's actually an issue, it's a biblical issue, because the word bachar, which means to choose, is so often used of God's actions with Israel, that God chose the Jewish people. And you see that all over Deuteronomy chapter 7, many other portions of Scripture. Eklego is used, of course, in Romans chapter 11. And so this whole idea of God choosing the Jewish people is important to Scripture. Um, In Judaism, 
there is some thinking about uh, Israel also choosing God. But I don't necessarily see that in the Bible. Uh, but eventually, uh, Israel does need to choose God, and that's the Romans 11 part of the equation. And then everything, be, everything that was promised becomes whole. But if I can just say that, um, well, it, it, you know, Daryl, it's kind of hard not to tell a joke, you know? I mean, is that okay? It was serious about cultural engagement, but life has a funny part to it, doesn't it? Okay, I'll sidebar this and say, joke coming, go ahead. Here it is, it's not a, it's not a ha-ha joke, it's just, so I think it was JFK was standing uh, on a lectern and, uh, and he was speaking to a lot of people and Golda Meir was next to him and he leans over and he says, you know, Golda, you can't imagine what it's like to be president of over 200 million people. And Golda leaned back and said, yeah, I can really sympathize, but you have no idea what it's like to be the president of 2 million presidents. And, <laughs> and so oh, you laugh, that's good. So the, the, the point is, uh, the Jewish people are the chosen people. It's not that the Jewish people necessarily know what the Jewish people are chosen for. Uh, but you just can't treat Israel and the Jewish people as every day, you know, one of the nations, one of the, you know, a language group, or um, you just can't treat the Jewish people normally or usually because the Jewish people, the creation of the Jewish people and what the Jewish people were supposed to do and what the, how the land plays into it, this was all God's idea. So it, it, it's almost like looking at the creation of the world. I mean, if you have a complaint about creation, you know, talk to God about it. <laughs> if you, it was his initiative, you know? If you have a problem with, the, with Israel and the Jewish people and the land belonging to Israel, and if you have a problem with Israel's future, well, don't talk to Daryl Bach or Mitch Glazer about it. You know, you're going to have to talk to God about it because the miracle child became a, a nation. And that's what's important. So, okay, so, so let, me, let me dive in here and, and, and root this in a covenant commitment, which is known as the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. Um, and start there because we're going to have to loop back and discuss this covenant. Um, I will. I, I will. So go ahead. Fundamentally, Calling the Jewish people the chosen people is a misnomer. The Jewish people are not the chosen people. They are the created people. So God initiated uh, a choice of one, na one nation before it ever was a nation and before it ever had a land to use that nation for his plan and his promises. And so God gave the Jewish people life and existence. And uh, there's a great uh, theologian, uh, he's passed away now, Jewish theologian, Michael Rishagrad. And he wrote extensively on these issues. And one of the questions Rishagrad poses is, is, honestly, have you ever heard about the creation of a nation before the nation had a land? And uh, that does make Israel quite unique. So let's but let's jump into chapter 12. But I just want to make sure that everybody understands that we're not just dealing with a nation. And when it comes to the land, we're not just dealing with any land. So when we apply our political 
cultural lens to the Palestinian-Israeli crisis or to any kind of issues related to anti-Semitism, or even whether we talk about different brands of theological inquiry as to how all this plays out, we have to fundamentally understand that God created the Jewish people for his plan and purposes. And as one more, one more famous Jewish quote, as Reb Tevye said when he was told by a Polish captain that uh, the Cossacks were about to destroy the Jewish people, he looked up to heaven and he said, Lord, next time, choose somebody else. <laughs> so the, the Abrahamic covenant is where the action took place. So God, in uh, Genesis 12, called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. Sarah uh, left. Uh, also, uh, Lot, everybody, everybody has a nephew like that. You know, he caused nothing but trouble. And so God gave the details of, of the covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis chapter 12. And primarily in verses 1 through 3, although the covenant was reiterated in 15, 17, 22, 35, all the way, all the way through the, uh, all the descendants. Uh, yeah, it was I'm going to come back to that because that's important. Go ahead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I believe that there are four essential theological, biblical components to the covenant. But all of the, all components were initiated by God. And that the whole idea of the Jewish people is God's idea, and it's a miracle, and it's something that God did himself. So four parts. So God said uh, to Abraham, um, go to the land which I've chosen. So he fills in the geography in chapter 15 and uh, chapter 17 to some degree. And so go to the land. So we know that part of the Abrahamic covenant is the land. Number two, part of the Abrahamic covenant is also the very community of Israel. And the fact that God is talking about sons and daughters, eventually, uh, like the sand of the uh, uh, desert and the stars of the sky, uh, from someone who shouldn't even, even had a child, <laughs> uh, it's quite something. So Number one, a land. Number two, a people. Uh, number three is very important. Uh, number three is that God promised a purpose. And that's at the end of chapter, at the end of uh, uh, verse three of chapter 12. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chose the Jewish people for the sake of the nations. In a sense, the Jewish people when you see the Jew creation of the Jewish people and the choosing of the Jewish people in light of the fall, which happened uh, uh, just nine chapters earlier, the fall of man, you begin to see, as you weave the text together, that God chose the Jewish people as a bridge of redemption to a dark, sinful uh, world, and broken world. And, uh, okay, the fourth part, the fourth component is that God would have a relationship with the Jewish people. That's implied all the way through the covenant statement. So number one, a land. Number two, a people. Number three, a calling or a purpose. And number four, a relationship. And so all four of those component parts are fundamentally described in the Abrahamic covenant. 
And God could never be finished with the Jewish people until those four parts were achieved. Okay, now that's important because we have a promise. We have a promise to form a people. That people have those people have a calling. Uh, that calling has a purpose, which is actually the blessing of the world. That through uh, through the seed of Abraham, the missiological purpose. That's right, missiological, and it's going to become messiological as well. You just have to, <laughs> not, very, not very many letters to deal with there, and then. Uh, um, and you go from there. And just to highlight how you forgot, you forgot the land. Well, I'm guess where I'm going. Um, when you when you highlight the issue of the land, the land in these reaffirmations, which you've already alluded to, are actually restated multiple times uh, in Genesis 15, five to seven, in 18 to 21, in 17, one to eight. That's uh, restated to Abraham, to Isaac in Genesis 26, two to five. Uh, to Jacob in Genesis 28, 3 to 4, and then 13 to 15. And then finally, when we have all the, all the 12 um, sons that make up the 12 tribes uh, in Genesis 50, 24. In fact, one can argue that the entire book of Genesis is nothing but the discussion of how the promise to Abraham to create a nation was fulfilled, because what you see is the descendants and the fulfilling till we get to the 12 sons who make up the tribes of Israel at the end of, of the book of Genesis. And lo and behold, that which was promised that would come out of Abraham has begun to have its fruition in the descending line that runs through Isaac and Jacob and eventually to the 12 um, in the book of Genesis. So all this is important in forming the backdrop for this relationship, which you've also highlighted, that God is going to have with the people of Israel, and that he formed on his own initiative and for his own purposes at the very beginning, as you've already noted. Um, anything you want to add to that? That's a very quick overview of the fact that land stays in view as we move through the reiteration of the promise. That was a great summary, Dr. Bach. And, uh, and a lot of people like to have the discussion with the Abrahamic covenant as to whether or not it was conditional or it was unconditional. And uh, I, I believe it's unconditional, but you know what does that really mean? It means that the one who created the conditions fulfills the conditions. And so, in other words, when the Jewish people, uh, when all of the four parts of the Abrahamic covenant converge into one glorious uh, event, future to today, then um, uh, we understand completely that the one who did that was God himself. Because you can't remove the Messiah, you can't remove Jesus uh, out of the covenant uh, promise because he's an essential way for the Jewish people and for all people to be blessed and to have a personal relationship with God. And we do believe that the Bible is developmental. It, there is revelation progresses throughout the scriptures. But all I'm saying is that God is not at all finished with the Jewish people, um, maybe never, as he's not finished with any of us. But God is not finished with the Abrahamic covenant until all elements of the Abrahamic covenant are fulfilled, no matter who initiates the fulfillment, whether it's God or whether it's Jewish people or the corporate nation of Israel. God is always behind it because it's his covenant. He's sovereign. 
He chose the Jewish people. He created the Jewish people, and he will fulfill the covenant. I don't know how long it's going to take, Daryl, but he's going to do it. Okay, so that that lays the groundwork for why the commitment to Israel exists, the special relationship that Israel has to God on God's initiative, etc. But let me let me flip this now to to the way the pushback sometimes comes, and let's address that half of the equation, because uh, what is sometimes said, appealing to texts like Galatians three, among others, is that the seed is singular. That, they're, uh, that the access to the blessings involved in the covenant are tied to the singular seed, of course, the Messiah who becomes Jesus Christ in the minds of Christians as they argue about what it is going on with the text. And so Israel does not have access to blessing to the extent that she is separated from a relationship with the Christ. Now, sometimes this is called replacement theology or supersessionism, uh, those who hold to this view will call it the fulfillment view because they will argue that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. And uh, that gets posed as kind of an opposition to one another. you got to choose either the replacement supersession side or the, and or the Jesus side. You can mix that up however you want. But why is it that—let me ask a very specific question. Why is it the fulfillment in Jesus does not— um, how can I say, cancel out the commitments that God has made to the people of Israel as a whole? Well, why would it? I mean, see, that's very Greek thinking. You may as well, you may as well be following Aristotle, not the Bible, you know, because in the Bible, you have parallel truths. In Greek thinking, you have causal truths, one than the other. And so I think we should just, you know, leave out, leave, leave out the Greek philosophy and stay biblical and understand that these are parallel truths. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it, that the Gentiles get into the, get into the picture. The same person who wrote Romans 11 uh, is the same one who wrote Galatians 3. Uh, there is an olive tree illustration of what will happen eschatologically when both Jews and Gentiles uh, fulfill their sense of unity in Christ, where we are uh, all part of the same beautiful uh, olive tree being nourished by the same root. That might happen to some degree with the church, but it happens in fulfillment at a future date. And so there's no, no doubt about it that the relationship with Jesus, the Messiah, as revealed throughout the rest of the Older Testament, is critical to the Jewish future and to the Gentile future. And uh, he actually unites us. He doesn't divide us. Uh, but the promises of God about land, people, relationship, and vocation, or, or calling, those are tried and true promises that were revealed in Scripture. And when we talk about replacement theology, we always talk about Israel being replaced by the church. Well, let's, let's stand it on its head a little bit. Uh, we're talking about God's promises to Israel and to the people of God in general, do we really believe that they've been replaced? Um, I mean, wh why would anyone think that they're replaced? Uh, there is a bright future uh, for those who uh, accept Jesus and uh, become part of the rich root of the olive tree who are not Jewish. And, uh, but God's going to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people uh, as well. So as you, as you would say, the, ex 
the inclusion of the Gentiles doesn't mandate the exclusion of the Jewish people. But the, and the rationale for that is that God keeps his promises. He spells them out and he keeps them. So does one negate the other? Again, uh, that's living in the world of cancellation and truths that um, you must, uh, where you feel obligated to choose one or the other. It's both, Daryl. It's just both. The Gentiles get blessed and the Jewish people get the covenant fulfilled. Both points are very, very important in, in putting them side by side. I can bring in Gentiles, which was always in view in the Abrahamic covenant. It was through the seed that the world was going to be blessed. I can always bring in Gentiles, but that doesn't mean you lose the original recipients of the commitments that God has made. And that's that's part of the point that's being made here. So that even though um, even though the bridge to blessing is the Messiah, okay, which is why you have a Davidic covenant, you have a Davidic covenant to build on the Abrahamic covenant, so that you can have this singular figure who brings blessing and brings deliverance. You have a new covenant on top of that because the forgiveness that uh, is needed, as well as the provision of the internal work of God, is necessary to complete the cycle. So that's why you get a new covenant. And these three great covenants work together to show God's commitment. And that original covenant in Jeremiah is explicitly said to be for Israel and Judah. It's explicitly attached to the nation. So whoever else gets included doesn't mean that you've excluded the hope that is extended to the Jewish people through this one who brings the deliverance. And so all that is important in thinking through Israel's eschatological role. And you alluded to Romans 11. Let's just review for people what that means. You've got an olive branch, uh, uh, an olive tree, rather, that is the promise. Uh, Israel is described as natural branches in that text. Gentiles are described as unnatural branches who have been grafted in. And Paul is foreseeing the reversal of that process, at least a partial reversal, and that it's very easy. If I can graft in unnatural branches, Paul goes on to say, uh, it's not going to be, in effect, he's saying, it's not going to be very hard to graft back in the natural branches. And when that happens, all Israel will get saved. And the Israel he's been talking about in Romans 9 to 11 is unbelieving Israel. It's not anybody else. And so, um, so in that context, he is foreseeing a day when Jews and Gentiles together in Christ are brought together in Shalom, which takes us back to Genesis 12, 3, and the, un- the fact that through the seed, um, the world is going to get blessed, and, uh, and Christ is in the middle of that. So that's, th- that's another quick overview of, of the program, looking at through the lens of the covenants on the one hand, and Paul's expression of the ultimate unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ in Romans 11 on the other is the completion of that eschatological cycle. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Gal, would you mind if I just uh, I agree with all that? Would you would you mind if I just give a little bit more of a of a background? And uh, you know, we, we're we're always I think we should be fundamentally biblical, of course, but I, I don't think we should shy away from some of the history and some of the politics of the situation. And so let me let me share a few things. Uh, lately, I've been uh, studying uh, the life of uh, Herzl. Uh, who was the, uh, so to speak, the, the founder of uh, modern uh, Zionism. And Theodore Herzl was a, uh, many of you might know this, he was born in the latter part of the 1800s. Uh, he died at 44 and actually visited Israel once, but never got to see the formation uh, of the nation. Uh, he was a reporter. He was a researcher. He was a writer. Um, a lot of people had tried to promote um, Zionism at that time, but it was Herzl who really enabled it to catch on. But it was a, it was a long journey, actually. Um, do you know that Herzl first came up, Herzl's goal was to keep the Jews alive. He was a non-religious Jewish people, didn't even have a bar mitzvah at the age of 13, uh, didn't speak Yiddish. Uh, he was from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, mostly the uh, Austrian part of it. And Herzl, in the latter part of the uh, 1800s, was dealing with pogroms, was dealing with Jews being killed, was dealing with the rise of vicious, vicious anti-Semitism. Jews were fleeing Eastern Europe, where there were about 11 or 12 million Jewish people, in what was known as the Pale of Settlement to get out of the country because they were being persecuted, their rights were being restricted, and uh, they couldn't all go to college, they couldn't go to medical school, they couldn't become professionals. There was just so many things that the Jews were denied and uh, couldn't own land in places. You have to remember how terrible that situation was. Herzl came up with one idea to uh, what, we, what was then called the Jewish question, and that was that all Jews should convert to uh, Christianity, and that the Pope should actually uh, visit uh, Eastern Europe and lead in a massive conversion process to Catholicism so that the Jews could, could now uh, lead a better life. Uh, that one didn't take Daryl. <laughs> uh, that, one, that one fell flat. The next plan was the Uganda plan. And in the Sixth Zionist Congress in 1903, Hertz presented the Uganda plan and said that uh, all the Jews uh, all over Europe who were being persecuted should move to uh, East Africa. And that was taken somewhat seriously, and it was, it was explored. And um, one of the problems was the uh, was a town uh, in what was in Russia, but is, is now uh, in uh, Belarus, called Kishnev. And it was the Kishnev uh, pogrom in 1903 that really put the Jewish people 
over the edge. Remember, this is all happening before the rise of Nazism, before Hitler, before he ever marched into uh, Poland and Austria and began slaughtering uh, uh, Jewish people. And before the Balfour Declaration as well. Before the Balfour Declaration, yes, of course. And so the, the, the desire for Jewish people to go to Israel was a desire to, to not die. And what happened was, is none of, these, none of these places worked out. Now, there was always a couple of hundred thousand Jewish people ever since, um, you know, throughout the 1800s and before. But there, was, uh, there were a lot of Jewish people in Israel. In fact, you can argue there were, uh, there were maybe at times there were more Muslims uh, than Jews. But for the most part, as you got closer to the turn of the, of the 20th century, uh, one can almost argue that they were easily argue that there were more Jews than there were uh, Muslims there. And so I'm not saying who I'm not arguing politically who has a right to the land necessarily. All I'm saying is that the Jewish people were scattered in 70 AD, scattered again in 122 AD in the Hadrianic Wars. But to say that Jewish people never had a presence in the land of Israel for 2000 years is not true. The Jewish people were there as much as any other people group uh, were there. And uh, and there were. Yes, the Ottoman Turks had control, but that didn't mean that there was a huge presence, wasn't a huge presence, uh, presence of the Jewish people. And eventually, Israel won out for the Zionists, because even though Herzl was a political Zionist, there was a whole group of religious Zionists who basically said, wait a minute, the Jews can't go to East Africa. Because in our synagogue, every single Shabbat, every single Saturday, we pray for the coming of the Messiah and the restoration of the Jewish people to the lands that God promised to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Israel went out, that swamp-infested, uh, dangerous uh, land that, that the Jews uh, eventually were able through uh, all sorts of political uh, mechanisms were able to, to get to. It won out as the place where the Jewish people would be saved. It, um, you know, my joke always is, uh, why couldn't uh, God have given the Jewish people a good slice of Florida or at least someplace in the Middle East where there was oil, you know? So it was, it was no great blessing uh, to get uh, the land of Israel, but the Jewish people had to get out. And they didn't even know what was about to happen when more than 6 million Jews uh, would actually be killed. So what we say is out of the ashes of the Holocaust comes the birth of the nation of, of Israel. And so there is a spiritual, emotional attachment to the land that Jewish people have had since Jesus walked the earth and before. Interesting. You know, uh, in hearing you talk about uh, what was said in the synagogues about Jerusalem and uh, and the hope for the Jewish people in terms of a land, it reminds me of the 14th benediction in the 18 benedictions, which is a historic um, Jewish um, Jewish blessing in which there is a prayer for the restoration uh, of 
in effect, the Davidic line of kingship on the one hand and deliverance for Jerusalem, uh, deliverance for Israel on the other. Um, and, and that is a part of the uh, famous 18 benedictions, which actually is a hope that, that um, is very similar in spirit to what you see in the New Testament in terms of who Jesus is and what it is that he's bringing. The Jewish people never lost hope in the promises of God. Um, now, did the Jewish people then, or did the Jewish people now, quote-unquote, deserve the land? Now, let's talk a little bit about biblical grace, and let's talk about covenants. Let's not talk about unconditional or not conditional. You know, when I was going to Bible college, after I became a believer at 19, I was a not-so-nice Jewish boy, Daryl, and came to faith. It's a good thing the Lord threw me right into Bible college because it was the only place I could get discipled. I was rowdy and rebellious, and uh, somebody needed to, 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 to tame me. And I had a whole group of, of loving teachers. Uh, but I, it was a pretty tra traditional dispensational Bible college. And I remember sitting there, uh, and the professor said, you know, uh, there, was, there was only minimal amount of grace in the Old Testament. Or some people said there was no grace in the, in the Old Testament. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, of course, nobody ever said there was no truth in the Old Testament, but they said there was no grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, nobody would argue that the Jewish people deserve uh, God's blessings any more th from a theological point of view. First of all, the Jewish people would never argue that because the Jewish people, Judaism, is known as a works religion, which is totally, totally false. Judaism is not a works religion. It's a grace religion. It's a Messiah-missing religion, which is the problem. <laughs> but it's a grace religion. Uh, Jewish people know that they were chosen by God. The land was given by God. There, there was never any question of whether or not Jewish people deserve the land. Daryl, thank God none of us, whether we be Palestinian or Jewish or Turkish or American or European, Thank God, in his providence, we don't get what we deserve. He makes grace available to us, and sometimes we don't choose it. So the Jewish people, do they deserve the promises of God promised to Abraham? No. Absolutely not. When will the Jewish people deserve those promises? Well, never. Uh, when will God give the Jewish people the fulfillment of these promises, including the land? When Jesus returns, because it's in Jesus that we find the ultimate grace. And we get what we don't deserve, the fulfillment of God's promises. So the moral and ethical argument that the Jews don't deserve the land is a, is a false argument, because no Jew and nobody who knows the Bible would ever argue that that's the basis for the land. It's the covenant that's the basis for the Jews having the land. It's the covenant. And the covenant is a covenant, a gracious covenant. And so you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, absolutely. So let me get at something that does get raised is kind of in this in this space that you're you're now talking in and that is the blessings and cursings at the end of deuteronomy in which some people say well that those are the conditions uh of 
Israel's right to remain in the land, etc. I like to point out that for a long time when Israel was disobedient, God still graciously allowed Israel to be in the land. And then eventually, uh, eventually they were, there was deportation, at, at, and, but, and it came, of course, with Assyria and with Babylon, respectively, and then, of course, later, uh, to some degree, with, with Rome. But in all of those cases, the idea was it was not going to be a permanent deportation. It was always a, a temporary deportation. And then this is when I like to inject a, a thought that's really important, which is, if we're going to talk about Jesus as the fulfiller, then maybe we ought to let the fulfiller speak about the plan. And so at the end of Luke, when he declares Israel's house desolate because they're not responding to him, he doesn't say, I declare your house desolate, and then put a period. He goes on to say, uh, I declare your house desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, looking forward to a limitation of the judgment on the nation for covenantal unfaithfulness, and looking forward to a period of restoration, which then he reaffirms in the Olivet Discourse when he talks about Jerusalem being in the hands of the Gentiles of the times the Gentiles are fulfilled, or which Peter reaffirms in Acts 3, which says heaven must hold the Messiah until the times of restoration come. And if you want to know what the times of restoration look like, read, your, read the prophets. They're telling you what's coming. So again... Go ahead. Go ahead. Again, it's all about grace. You know, it's all about getting what you don't deserve. Let me read the Old Testament version of Luke uh, and Matthew uh, uh, 23, 37 through 39, which is the parallel passage. Right. In uh, Deuteronomy 4, okay, first sermon before the Israelites go into the land, Moses says, verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You'll be left few in numbers among the nations where the Lord drives you, there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither you hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you search for him with all your heart and your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate, the Hebrew word rachamim, a compassionate God, he will not fail you, nor destroy you, and here it is, the zinger, nor forget the covenant which your fathers, with, with which he swore to your fathers. You see, even though the Israelites were about to go into the land, Moses told the Israelites, you're going to go in the land, you're going to go out of the land, because you're going to be disobedient, but by the end of time, this covenant this compassion of God, this grace will overwhelm you. And I will basically cause you to be obedient and you will repent and you will turn Zechariah 12, 10, and uh, you will return to the Lord. And then what I call covenant convergence will take place. Covenant convergence is when all four parts of the Abrahamic covenant reiterated in the Davidic covenant, in the new covenant, and, and so on, when all four parts actually happen at the same time. And now here's the other part of this. So it's the relationship, it's the land, it's, it's the blessing, it's the people, but, it's, but let me emphasize one thing. 
through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When the Jewish people get right with the God of Israel through Jesus the Messiah and return to him and accept him as Lord and Savior, then they will finally enjoy all of the promises, including the land promises. Because let me tell you, if you've ever been to Tel Aviv, if that's a promise of blessing, I don't know. I don't know. It's like a New York with Hebrew subtitles, you know? And so it's no blessing to anybody. Uh, it's, it's a nice place to get falafel and, and do high tech. But there is a day coming when the Jewish people will truly be blessed and will enjoy the land. According to Zechariah 14, guess who swarms in to enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles and to enjoy the, the blessings of the kingdom where Jesus is ruling as on his rightful throne in Jerusalem, the Gentiles, the nations. Daryl, this all go. Listen, the cross is the center of human history. So don't take this wrong. But the cross leads to something else. I, I always love to say, you know, there'd be no second coming without a first coming. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I don't mean that in, in the way it sounds. All the blessings of the second coming are going to come about because Jesus, the Messiah, died for our sins. And we can become right with God. And the curse can be lifted, Romans chapter 8, from the land. And the promises of God will be fulfilled. And so I think the greatest moment of Gentile blessing will be when, along with the Jewish people living in the land of Israel, uh, with the Gentiles coming and spending lots of time, who knows, maybe they'll get their own fig tree. But when that time comes, the blessings are not for the Jews alone. They never were supposed to be. The blessings are going to be for Palestinians and for Europeans and for South Americans and for Asians and for all who are drawn to the one king of Israel and the king of the world, uh, Yeshua. That's what we're looking forward to. That's covenantal convergence. That's what's going to happen. So uh, just to reinforce this with a couple of other passages, um, whether you're thinking about Isaiah 2, 1 to 4, or Isaiah 19, verses sure. 18 to 25, I like the second passage a lot because it pictures a highway. And that highway, I call it the M1. Uh, that highway runs from Egypt through Jerusalem to Assyria, and they're all gathering in Jerusalem, and all three groups are called my people in that passage. In one so, who was who, so who was replaced in that passage? No one. That's no right. one's replaced. We're all, we're all blessed. And, and the picture of ultimate reconciliation of very estranged people with a very estranged history, all you have to do is look at the history of Israel vis-a-vis -vis the nations throughout the history of mankind, so uh, let's, reversed. In Jesus Christ permanently. So let's talk about let's talk about one little. Uh, uh, totally agree, but I know we're, we're on a clock here. So let me let me say this: uh, Do we believe that all of these eschatological events and this covenantal convergence that we're talking about will be happen will happen in the flash of one moment, or do we believe that there are incremental moments? Uh, to this. In other words, we experience some of what will be where we are now uh, because of the presence of Jesus in our lives by his spirit. My answer is, I see 
the Jewish people beginning to come back to the Lord. I see the remnant increasing. I see the Jewish people in the land of Israel, though Lord knows it's not at peace. It's not the land that he wants us to inherit, but at least in part, miraculously, almost 7 million Jewish people out of the 14 million Jewish people in the world have returned uh, uh, to the land. So do I see these things as incremental? Uh, do I see the fact that the church, Jews and Gentiles, is enjoying the rich bounty and presence of the Lord uh, because of the Holy Spirit who indwells believers and is in the midst of the church? Um, do I see men and women, Jews and Gentiles, being transformed by God's grace through the proclamation of the gospel? Uh, I see all of these things. I think we're on a slow march uh, to this covenantal convergence, and we have to recognize that we need to understand this as we walk our way through it. And uh, it, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but there is some reconciliation happening. There are Jewish people living in the land and some non-Jews living in the land. Um, we are reaching out to others for Jesus. And there's lots of Jewish people coming to know the Lord in Israel, in the United States. Uh, last, you know, you know, recently with the Ukraine situation, I know of at least 20, 25 Jewish people that were baptized who came to know the Lord and, and were immersed. God is doing some really great things. It's going to happen at the end. It's all going to happen, just like it all came to the ahead at the cross. It will all come to a head at the second coming. However, we're on a slow march, and we need to recognize the signs of the times. Okay, so two points here to close up. Uh, one is, uh, I always like to tell this story. Um, as you know, I go to Israel on a regular basis. When I go to Israel on a regular basis, I almost inevitably end up on both sides of the wall that, that exists around the Palestinian community. And I was asked to come to the Palestinian community to... Uh, to minister to them on one of the more recent trips that I've made. It's now been several years ago, uh, pre-COVID, but but nonetheless, I was I was going in. I was actually pretty nervous about going into this environment and and speaking about uh, some of the things that I believe about Israel. And uh, as soon as I walk into the house, I see a symbol which you often see in Israel. You don't see it very many places anywhere else. It's a Star of David and a fish connected by a cross. And, uh, and the moment I saw that, I went, I'm among friends, I'm not going to have a problem here. Um, and, 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 and you hear about um, Jewish believers, Messianics, and Gentile believers, usually Palestinians, um, touching base with one another based upon their union in Christ. You hear about that going on, which shows everything that's, that's going on. So that's one observation. The second observation I want to make is this. One of the questions that continually comes up from people who would doubt what we've just said over the last little over half an hour is, well, I can hold out hope for Israel in the future. I can hold out hope for Jews in the future. I'm not sure about the national thing, but everything comes through Christ. So a nation that is detached from Christ, we can't assume has God's eye or God's blessing. And I think that everything that we've just said, particularly in the last 20 minutes, argues against that view. And your slow march 
is another element of that equation. I like to say when I get asked about Israel being in the land as a sec primarily secular nation, unbelieving, et cetera, what do I think of that? Why can I see why do I see that as significant? And I say because two centuries earlier, if you had said that that was going to happen, most people would have said you're crazy. There's no way that could happen. There's no way that could be possible. And so what you're seeing is God showing um, through events that the things that he has talked about and the things that he has promised are, uh, are in process and are uh, in the direction of being doable uh, for him. Of course, anything's doable for him that he sets his mind to, but still, it's, it's worth reminding people who are slow to see that God can do something uh, to remind them that God's quite capable of doing this. Do I have time to share one little passage? Absolutely. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Again, Israel was chosen for the Gentiles. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I chose you to be a light to the nations. Instead, you've blown it. Here's what I'm going to do. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which is God's motivation, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. We can honestly say that God is talking, Ezekiel's talking uh, on behalf of the Lord to a, a nation that is unregenerate, that is not believing, that is not enjoying his grace, that is failing in their mission, correct? This is yep. a yep. sinful nation. So what is this great thing that's going to cause the nations to be astounded? What, what, what is God going to do? Verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all these lands, and bring you into your own land. Still their own land, huh? Even though they were in exile. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. That's covenantal convergence. So how do you read the current situation? If the Jewish people are back in the land in unbelief, then that is a fulfilled prophecy, because the Jewish people were not supposed to come back to the land in order to uh, merit. In other words, they were not to be holy when they came back to the land to merit being in the land. Actually, they were to be in sin, rebellion, which they were, and God would do a miracle. He would take the Jewish people, put them back in the land, and then in the land, he would pour out his spirit, change their heart, and restore them, and fulfill his covenantal promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Jewish people back in the land fulfilled this prophecy and many other prophecies, which exactly what God said uh, would happen. So if you want to argue again that the Jewish people don't deserve the land, I would say exactly. That's why it's a fulfilled prophecy. <laughs> they don't deserve the land. Abraham was asleep when the covenant was made, for heaven's sake. You know, So there's no doubt that they don't deserve the land. 
but they're in the land. And that's a sign that God is working out this covenantal convergence in these last days. So we pull this all together. And what's interesting about that passage, of course, is, is that it is another way that Ezekiel expresses the hope of the new covenant for the nation. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it depicts the core of the gospel, which is you get sins forgiven so that, so that your vessel can be cleansed so that God can indwell it. That's a very Jewish way of thinking. Um, and, uh, and, and then, of course, on the other side is, you said because of the fathers and because of the name of God. Um, and this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, it's because of the fathers. God made a commitment to the fathers, which he is keeping. It's not because of them, and it's not because of the nation that comes out of them or anything deserved. It is all the grace and commitment of God, and God keeps his word. And God's going to honor his word. He's going to honor his word, not only to those that he originally made it to, but to the world that was supposed to become the vessel of blessing through that word. Everybody gets covered that way. And that's grace abounding in a needy world, which is at the core of what the gospel is all about. So come well, through Jesus. I mean, what else do you need? Amen. I mean, that's about, you know, so be it. Um I think that that's a, a, a great summary and a great picture. And, uh, you know, we should live, we should live life uh, in light of the future. I think that's one of the real messages of 1 John, for example. You know, he who has this hope purifies himself, even as he is pure. I think that we live our lives in light of what God is going to do. So if we understand that a covenantal convergence is coming, then we do, we do two or three things. Number one, we love the Jewish people, we pray for the Jewish people, and we support the Jewish people coming back to the land. That's, that's important. We also share the gospel with the Jewish people because the Jewish nation is on its way to being saved corporately, but there are individual Jewish people who won't make it to that day, and they need to be saved before they face a Christless eternity. And then finally, we need to love the nations. We need to understand that God chose the Jewish people to be a light uh, to the nations and that these astounding miracles that God is going to perform in the last days are all designed to capture the attention and the hearts of the nations. So whether uh, it would be had been better if the Israelites somehow had won the nations uh, earlier, but it's going to take God to work in the lives and hearts of the Jewish people to turn them to himself to then ultimately, as he promised, bring his blessings to the nations. And so it's an argument in my, in my understanding for world missions, Daryl, um, because God loves the nations. And so, yes, I still believe Romans 116 should be taken quite literally. I believe it's to the Jew first, but I don't believe that protos or proton is, is sequential. I believe it's a matter of priority. We reach the Jewish people because the Jewish people have a vital role in the plan of God, and they need to hear the gospel. But it, it never stops there. It's an also to the Gentiles. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes the Great Commission, the great, the Jewish people become the great omission of the Great Commission, <laughs> and, and, and we don't want that. And so we do, the last place you want to see replacement theology is in world evangelism. Uh, we want to make sure that the church understands in light of what God's going to do, we need to reach the Jewish people and we need to reach the world for Jesus.
And the result on the other end is a shalom, a shalom that exists between people who were so um, totally estranged that whether you think about the period in Babylon or the period in Assyria, the time of the Romans and the time of Jesus, whether you think of the most recent European history, some of which you reviewed for us in terms of what was going on in Eastern Europe, no matter what you think about and you see estranged people, you see Jesus Christ bringing people together in an act of reconciliation that not only involves their relationship with God, but corporately their relationship with one another, which is why the gospel stands at the center of what this hope is all about, with Israel being a very important part of the way that story works. So I want to thank you, Mitch, for being a part of this conversation uh, and for uh, the ministry that you have at Chosen People Ministries. And and thank you for giving us your time to talk about this important topic. My pleasure. Anytime, Daryl. And we thank you for being a part of the table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you uh, want to see other episodes of the table, you can turn to voice.dts.edu slash table podcast. We'd love to have you come back and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to the table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.